Hello, hello room one. Jess here. I haven't seen you in a really long time. Um, we don't have anybody joining the call just yet, so I'm just going to chit chat a little bit to allow people to jump on. Um, I really appreciate you being um, understanding if you were understanding yesterday. I was post call and having the huge happen where we're just kind of like at the mercy of the operating room and consults rolling in with late MRIs and whatnot. So um, that was not expected. Okay, second thing, we have some construction going on at my house. It's just a fence and my husband kindly asked the fence builder to move the saw to the back of the house, but don't be surprised if we have a saw sound coming through um, here and there. And we also have barking dogs. So thank you for your patience and all of that. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and jump right in because there's actually a lot I wanna cover for people today. Um, not only do I wanna review the model because that's kind of the key tool that we use uh, in room one coaching for um, organizing our brains and um, our thoughts. Uh, I'll, I'll review that for you, but also I wanted to wrap up a little bit on thoughts, which is how we started this program in November. And then next, what we'll do is move into the next step in the model, which is the feelings. And this is my all-time favorite. The feelings is um, something that I'm really, really enjoying uh, learning about, teaching, and experiencing because I used to be dead inside. And now I'm not, so I'm really excited about it. Um, alrighty, so let's go ahead and review the model. Of course, as you all know by now, um, this is just the thought model that we use to help organize our thoughts. And in the thought model, our circumstances are the facts that are outside of us. This is basically the external world. And the things that happen in the external world trigger us to have thoughts. Our thoughts, then cause us to have feelings. Our feelings drive our actions and our actions will then create our results. And this is our internal world. So I love thinking about this in terms of the external world and then our internal world because our internal world is what we experience. It literally is our experience of everyday life. And if there is any point in this internal world that we have authority over, then it's important for us to know where that is. And if there's any point in the internal world where we can get information about ourselves as human beings, that's also important because we are human and we're all living a human life. Okay, so that's the model. If you have any questions about these, you're always welcome to pop over to ask a coach. If you're running models on your own and your own self-coaching and you're wondering about them, um, don't hesitate to pop over there and um, ask questions on ask a coach. That function in room one is there on purpose for you to be able to reach out anytime you're struggling or want to share something. Okay, let's move on. Um, I wanted to try to talk a little bit about thoughts because that's where we started this uh, adventure in November was on thoughts. Thoughts are where we have our power because all thoughts are 100% optional. 
But what I have noticed, not only in myself, but in my clients that I coach, is that once we realize that we have the ability to choose thoughts on purpose, we immediately then blame ourselves for unhappiness or our, you know, whatever unpleasantness we experience because we think, oh, well, I should just be able to think a better thought. And that's really not how it works. Um, I mean, that's a that's an option for you to do, but it kind of misses the bigger point about life. And really what it is, is we have these thoughts that are coming at us so fast, 60,000 a day. Um, our brains are efficient. And so they're, they're coming at this fast pace. It's just sentences and sentences and sentences like a ticker tape going on in your brain. And our primitive brain is the thing that's kind of like the main operating system, it seems like, with these default programs that we run. So if that's the case, I think that that's important to recognize that it's completely normal. It means that we're normal humans, we're experiencing a normal human brain, what a healthy human brain does, and that there is this option to use the prefrontal cortex. So it's not so much using the model as some sort of like cleaning device to make unpleasant default programming go away. It's recognizing that the two exist and they both can serve us and we can learn to harness their power and we don't need to scrub anything away. They can just be there. We can learn to turn the volume down on the default programming um, when we choose instead of thinking, oh, I've got to get out of this thought, I've got to make it go away. Um, so, you know, the primitive brain is normal. It's there to keep us safe. That's why we've had it and why it's evolved and been conserved over the millennia. And this is where default programming comes from and it makes perfect sense. So when my brain offers me thoughts that I'm not good enough or I'm gonna fail at something, then I can know that it's just my brain trying to keep me from doing something that my brain thinks is scary. And I'm kind of glad my brain has that ability. I'm kind of glad that my brain can protect me. I just, I just don't need it to be functioning all the time. And of course our prefrontal cortex is our planning center. We all know and use our prefrontal cortex on the daily because we're surgeons. We know how to plan. We can plan the shit out of things. And imagine how often you've sat ahead of time and planned your operation or planned your clinic or planned your vacation or whatever it is. We are planning machines. And it's really important to recognize that we can utilize the planning machine for everyday life and it just requires practice and the intentionality and in deciding what to think on purpose. Um, let's see here. So instead of using the model to kind of thought swap and try to just change your thought to something that's going to produce a different feeling. I like to first try to make peace with the thoughts that I have that aren't serving me. Um, and again, I think 
you know, those thoughts are there. It does, it's not like they're bad. They're just words. They're just sentences that are going, going through my brain at any given time. This is just how our brains work. So instead of just trying to like make it go away, I like to make peace with it. And I like to think about the primitive brain and think about the safety that it's trying to offer me and think about the fact that life is not supposed to be like 100% amazing at all times. We're not supposed to be happy 100% of the time. We're supposed to have this wide variety of human experience, which starts with a wide variety of human thoughts. So um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this whole like life is 50-50 concept is we wouldn't even understand what good felt like if we didn't have something to contrast it to. So if something is amazing all the time, how you, you need that contrast of pain and in, in order to understand and appreciate and experience how pleasant something is, if that makes sense. So I think that's a really important thing to consider when you're working through your own thoughts is just, they don't need to go anywhere. They, they're not harming anybody in any way. They are just sentences, just words. I, you know, like on a ticker tape, they're just stories we're making up. We can choose to believe it. We can choose not to believe it, but we don't have to kind of scrub them away. Um, all right, I feel a little bit like a broken record now. I am going to have one more page on making peace with your thoughts, um, with the default thoughts, because they are, you know, they are there and they seem so easy and they seem so believable. So what if we could ask some questions about the default thoughts that might help us make peace with them? And here are some questions that I just jotted down earlier today that maybe you would want to play around with. Like, what if my default thought is optional? Well, yes, of course it is. All thoughts are optional. What if my default thought is useful? It's possible, right? It's possible that sometimes that programming that's kind of running is actually doing something that benefits us. Maybe it keeps us from, um, you know, making a mistake. Maybe it keeps us from saying something we are going to regret. Who knows? It's, I mean, maybe, maybe that safety mechanism is really important to have. So maybe it's sometimes even necessary. I don't know, but it's something to think about. The other thing we might understand is that our thoughts are harmless because like they're really just words, right? It's just like little sizzles in our brain, little words, sentences that are going. So they're not really, um, it's not like an actual lion is roaring in our face. Um, and then my very, very favorite is, and that's okay. So when I'm trying to make peace with something, I'll have my default programming that's at play. Um, we'll just use, I'm not good enough because that's our, that's a goodie. Um, 
that's something I feel like we as women surgeons kind of have running with some frequency. So I'm not good enough. I used to believe it. And the volume on that thought was very high. And as I've been doing this work and I've been questioning it and understanding how the human brain works and understanding how thoughts work into our lives in the model, I've learned to ask questions and I've learned to rephrase things a little bit to turn the volume down on the thought. So with the thought, I'm not good enough. If that volume is really high, that's going to impact your life and potentially not serve you very well. Might keep you from doing things you really want to do in the world. Um, If you're able to turn the volume down on something like I'm not good enough, then you can have the thought and then just do stuff anyway. And one of the things I like to do is kind of try to separate myself out, like the identity of I am not good enough and switch up the words to I'm noticing like right now I'm feeling I'm not good enough or I'm noticing I'm not, uh, I'm sorry, I'm noticing I don't feel good enough with this task. And what that does is it separates my identity away from the not good enough part. And it gives it a little bit more um, definition around the edges of it. And it makes it like I have space to exist around it. And I'd invite you to practice things like that. If you're noticing a default thought where the volume seems really high on it, just see if you can play around with adding words around that thought to turn the volume down. Um, And so the other favorite that I have is saying, and that's okay. So for example, I'm thinking I'm not good enough. And again, the I am not makes it a real identity statement. So if I say I'm noticing, I think I'm not good enough and that's okay. Because really we're just human beings. So of course it's okay. Of course, it's okay to have doubt. Of course, it's okay to be, um, you know, feeling at times that you aren't good enough or you're unworthy or, you know, you can fill in the blank. So I add that's okay mentally, maybe 150 times a day, I can catch myself doing that. And it's really useful because it helps me to just feel, first of all, that my identity of worthiness is not tied up in it and that the volume gets turned down. The thought's still there, it doesn't go anywhere, but it gives me some space then around it to think, okay, I understand this is how I'm thinking and it's normal that I'm thinking this way. And so I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna go do this thing anyway, even though I'm afraid, even though I feel like I'm not good enough. Okay, so that was about 10 to 15 minutes on thoughts. And I would be really happy to entertain any um, questions if you want to email me or email on the website coach at Common Thread Women Surgeons. Um, I'd be happy to clarify anything. All right. 
So now we're going to move into my favorite topic. And I'm noticing that my new markers are very, very bright because we can see all of my, um, like the next page underneath. But that's a Sharpie for you. Okay. So the next step in the thought model, you know, we have circumstances, thoughts, feelings, actions, and results. Feelings are so cool because our feelings are in our body. Our feelings are what is like happening, what we're experiencing in our body. And as we know from the thought model, our, the thought starts up here. And then there's this vibration that happens throughout the body. It's this neuroelectric cascade of events, synapses all the way out to all the different body parts. So you feel something in your body. I use the term feelings interchangeably with emotions. Um, I'm not sure that that's the case with, you know, everywhere you go or everything you read, people might distinguish between the two, but I don't. I don't know that it is useful for this purpose. So sometimes I'll say feelings, sometimes I'll say emotions, and um, you can use whatever term you want. Um, You might wonder why are feelings so important? And I think they're important because our bodies have a lot of information. They give us information, they give us a direction, and they're really our feelings are the energy that fuels our actions. So our feelings kind of have a pretty important role in this whole model process. But one thing that I've noticed as I've gone through this coaching was how numb I used to be. I was very detached. I was very compartmentalized in the way I experienced my life. And I was um, described as cold, cut off, like I put up a wall. Um, so that... I think most likely is describing this inability to understand what was going on in my body um, and to even name what was going on in my body. And what I've come to learn is that if we can, if you can describe what it is you're feeling and name it, name the feeling that you're feeling and get to a really granular level, you'll get so much information and I'll show you how this is the case in just a moment. Um, there is a metaphor I like to use um, that's like a medical metaphor. I like to use the fever as a metaphor. So your patient comes to you, say they're post-op and they have a fever. So the fever is in the body and the fever is a signpost. It is telling you look deeper. It's telling you, ask questions about what's going on here. So then you do, you take a history, you ask, does it hurt somewhere? Is there redness? Is it swollen? Um, and then each question gives you more and more answer about what the fever means. And then you can learn ultimately, you know, how to solve the problem. If you're cut off from that and the patient has a fever and you're just resistant to it and in denial that the fever is there, 
whatever is causing the fever is festering and festering and festering and the patient gets worse. And we are like completely separate from it. We don't have any, um, we're not able to get any information out of it if we're resisting and denying. So that's my little metaphor that I think makes sense to a lot of doctors and specifically surgeons, just to think of it like my feelings are kind of like a fever, you know? It's like telling you something. It's telling you to ask questions. It's saying, look deeper. It's giving you some kind of information and direction. Okay. Um, I'm going to go to this next page and then backtrack to a real life example that happened yesterday. So just, this is the model again, but it's just in a little bit of a different form here. Um, I kept the, you know, circumstance thought feeling, but I made the A line look a little different so that we can see how the interaction between what we're feeling and what we're doing is so critical and how being able to name your feeling can help you dig a little deeper and get more in touch with yourself as a human being. So of course, the circumstances trigger our thoughts, the thoughts cause the feelings. And then once we have a feeling, we get to the A line. And oftentimes, the first thing that we do is we make it mean something about ourselves. So I have an example um, that I'll share with you. It's a real life example from yesterday, but we do stuff like this all the time. Like we'll feel, um, say, scared about something and we'll make it mean that we're not good enough to do the operation or whatever, or we'll make it mean we're weak or we'll make it mean we're not worthy of love or something like that. And if you are telling yourself that and you're making up a story as a part of your action that is coming from your feeling, then if you start to believe that, it really can get you kind of entrenched in um, a little bit of a loop, right? It's, it's kind of like a stuck way to be. Um, the other thing we often do is we try to exit. Like we want to get off the feeling freeway, if you know what I mean. Like you're trucking down the freeway and you're going at a clip and you gotta get the hell off the freeway so you wanna exit. And if you're feeling an unpleasant emotion, you're like, I do not wanna feel this. Most humans don't, it's completely normal to like, not like feeling unpleasant feelings. Um, but we do these things to like, to not feel an unpleasant emotion. And that's when we resist, we avoid, we ignore, and we do that through this action called buffering. Um, I used to drink wine to buffer. I don't do that anymore. Um, Netflix binging is another really common thing I've done and see people do when you're just like, I do not want to feel this. I need to turn off. I need an off switch. I need an exit right now. Um, so what that does is it, first of all, doesn't allow us to process the emotion. So the emotion just stays there and sometimes it builds and it basically incapacitates us from being able to solve whatever it is that's causing that unpleasant emotion. So 
Another option is to embrace or allow the feeling. And this is where all the questions come in. And this is where your feelings can be a really, really important signpost to help you understand what it is you actually value, what do you really need, and what do you desire? Because your feeling is this thing in your body and it is trying to scream at you that you have something that is important to you. It's a signpost. Okay, so let me go back to the example. I may cry, just FYI, because I still have the feels about this. Um, but this is my example. And I don't have a thought filled in on purpose because I've actually been working on what the thought actually is that's involved with this one. Okay, so yesterday I did a, an amputation on a 19 year old young lady. I did a through knee amputation. And just to give you a little bit of context, I have been taking care of this patient for five years. She has a remote history of a sarcoma in her thigh that was treated, treated with radiation. So she's had a lot of complications with the growth of her femur bone, the growth of her pelvis um, function, her leg has not functioned for her very well for over a decade. And um, she's wanting to move on. She's 19 now and she's just kind of over it. So I have been working on her for the last two years on the idea of amputation because that's not something you just like jump into usually. And um, yesterday was the day. So it was set up to um, try to give her the best possible result. We had a plastic surgeon there to do targeted muscle reinnervation. Um, her soft tissues looked beautiful. Everything turned out really great in the end. But with all of that, if I can kind of pull the facts out without the editorialization of the context, um, basically as I did this amputation on a 19 year old young lady. And the feeling that I had was sadness when we were done, I was just sad. I went and talked to her mom and I was sad. And I talked to her and I was sad. And I left the hospital and I was sad. I was sad, sad, sad. My husband commented on it. And then sad is kind of one of those feelings. It's like a big umbrella feeling. It can mean a lot of different things. So in an effort to try to understand better what this sadness was signposting to me, I tried to get really granular with what I was feeling. And to do that, I actually just checked in with my body. So my, I was noticing that my teeth were really clenched. In fact, my jaws are sore today because my teeth were so clenched for hours and hours and hours yesterday. I had this chest tightness and I noticed that I was taking super shallow breaths. Um, I had a real sense of heaviness, like a weight, just like pushing down, pushing down. I don't think I was having a heart attack, like an elephant sitting on my chest, but it was just like this heavy heaviness that I felt on my chest and it was nauseated. And I also noticed that I had a lot of tightness up in my traps and up in my upper back muscles. And this was long after I left the hospital. And when I was really thinking about these different sensations in my body of how my body felt, I was like, man, I don't know. Like I was running through all these different things because I think 
all of them were kind of at play. Like I was a little bit scared, I think, because I didn't want to make anything worse for her. I was feeling depleted because of all of the kind of planning and efforts that we put into making it just so, um, I was feeling anxious about, did I do a good job or not? I was feeling really lonely because I'm her primary surgeon and I just felt like I'm the only one responsible here and nobody else can really know how I feel right now. And I just felt really alone. I was also feeling empathy because with her mom, I cried with her mom and, and I'm a mom and I could just try to put myself in her mom's shoes about her daughter losing a part of her body. And, um, you know, they've been committed to this leg for a decade. And so it was a lot of sort of shared empathy with her mother um, and sorrow. And I was feeling uncertainty. This, this goes along with feeling scared, you know, uncertain that this is really going to help her. Is this going to be the right thing? But honestly, when the rubber met the road, I was heartbroken. And when I realized it was a feeling of heartbreak, it just, I suddenly knew that is what I was feeling was heartbreak. And I was instantly taken back to when my high school sweetheart and I broke up after five years and I felt like the world was ending. I was just heartbroken. And that's exactly how I felt last night after this amputation. So um, it was important for me to get very, very granular with the feeling and not just keep it with generic sad because these signal different things. These signal different needs or different desires, but heartbroken signaled to me something about brokenness. And that helped me identify the thought actually. The thought was, I broke her. I was thinking, I broke her. This can never be undone. It was the finality of it all. It was the absolute last resort thing that is done now. And this cannot be walked back. And I just felt heartbroken about it. No matter what happens, it cannot be undone. Um, and so again, our feelings can be a signpost. And so then I have to ask myself, what is the value here that I have that this heartbreak is signaling to me? Or what is this need or what is this desire I have? And I think in this instance, my desire is for this person to be whole and to have a whole life and to, and to have all the opportunities and you know everything she wants to do. I, I want her to have wholeness and I want me to have wholeness. And I value being able to show up in love and you don't experience heartbreak if you don't have the capacity to love. And so then as I started to understand that the feeling is really just signaling to me things about my humanity, I then suddenly realized the value of it. I realized the value of feeling heartbroken and I was able to go to sleep and I was able to wake up today and function and not be 
just completely overwhelmed and taken down by the sadness. So that's a little example of how this works in real life. Um, whoops, I forgot to flip the page. So I did wanna kind of go to this where it's like, if you can get really, really granular with what you're feeling, then you can understand that the feeling is trying to signal something to you. So very often as humans will say, first of all, as surgeons, since many of us have been numb or cut off or detached, which is how I used to be, um, when you start to be able to name your feelings, it can be difficult at first because you're not really sure. And it's really hard to put names on them. And so we start with these really broad descriptions, like I feel lonely or I feel, um, say, I feel down or I feel mad or I feel stressed. Stressed is a good one because stress is like this big umbrella. We all feel stressed probably from time to time. It's a good one to look at. So if you think about feeling stressed, what does that really mean for you? It could mean that you're anxious about how something went. It could mean that you're depleted. It could mean that you're lonely. It could mean that you um, have too many things going on or too many things. You think you have too many things going on. It could mean you need to have an important conversation with somebody you don't want to have. So you just have to look a little bit deeper about what a more sort of generic umbrella feeling feels like and get really granular with it. And that's when you'll start to see what is my feeling trying to signpost? What is it telling me? Is it some value that I have? Is it some need that I have for connection, for um, compassion? for love, or is it something that I really, really desire? All right. Um, that is actually the end of the fun pages to flip. So I will go ahead and ask if we have any questions right now. Um, And then we have the chat open. So if anybody has any questions, feel free. And if not, then I, like I mentioned, would be happy to um, field any questions about feelings on Ask a Coach or on um, just on email at coach at Common Thread um, Women Surgeons. And then, or even my personal email, which is jess.mcmichael at gmail.com. Okay, let's see here. We do have the idea of being numb to our feelings, of not being able to name our feelings really resonates. Yes, yes, it does. So think about this. It's really fascinating. We, um, I think this is a survival mechanism because we go through medical school and residency and we see a lot of traumatic things and we have traumatic experiences. Um, and then that kind of perpetuates into our practices. Um, and I think it makes sense, right? It makes sense that we kind of numb out. 
And I got to a point in my own life where I was so detached that I was not showing up in my marriage. I was not showing up as a mother. Um, I was basically white knuckling a lot of the time. And then being able to start to kind of go into my body. Well, here's some, another interesting thing. I'll just kind of wax poetic about this for a second. I realized something as we were going through the book club last month. Um, as female surgeons were expected to bury our emotions to fit in. Yeah, no doubt. Everything yourself. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah. In a very uncomfortable way for sure. You're right. So yesterday on purpose, I was with a male, another male surgeon. Um, I was with two male residents and then the plastic surgeon was there um, with a female resident. So it was a really interesting case because of the targeted muscle reinnervation uh, on the amputation case. So I was noticing these feels coming through at the end of the case. And I actually made it a point to stop what I was doing and tell everybody that I was feeling really upset and really sad. And I was sharing with them and I was inviting them to not shut it down. And at the end, my partner, who's a um, tumor surgeon, he's pretty new in practice, but he said, you know, I feel like we're not allowed to feel stuff. And it, it was interesting that he reached out to me because I think that we all are taught that we need to kind of stuff it all down. But I think the guys are being taught it too, to a certain extent. And I don't know, you know, how much more difficult it is for us or if it is more difficult for us, but he did comment that he feels like he struggles with it because he, he deals with cancer patients and that's supposed to be upsetting. We're not supposed to be robots. Um, anyway, uh, I got off task a little bit. I wanted to tell you something about my body. This is why I love feeling so much and why I'm going to be a total nerd this month is because I realized something recently that I have not felt safe in my own body. And it was in the book club where we were going over that book about stress and I listened to it. I didn't read it. And she said in the audio version, um, I forget, it was like towards the beginning where she said, do you feel safe in your own body? Like when the stress response is going, your body doesn't know when the stress response needs to be over. It has to be like signaled by those six methods. And so your body isn't a safe place to be. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's it. Like I haven't felt safe in my own body, my probably most of my life. And I think it, nothing bad ever happened to me as far as like abuse in that regard. But I realized that a lot of the dieting shenanigans I've gone through since high school to include anorexia and to include orthorexia has been my way of um, being controlling about this body, about not accepting 
this body of not feeling safe in this body. And in going through this feeling work and like really trying to tune in to what it is my body has to offer, like, what is it telling me? It is telling me something important about who I am. It is telling me, it's giving me a signal. And I, I love it because I'm starting to get in tune with my body and it's feeling like a safe place to be for the first time in a couple of decades. So I think, um, you know, when we're feeling numb and detached and cut off, it's totally normal because this is how we're, you know, cultured, if you will. Um, but I also know that it impacts how we show up as a human and it decreases our capacity to be solving our problems or connecting with other people. So these are just a few of the reasons why I really, really like the, um, the feelings. Okay. Um, this was kind of a short one today, you guys. I thought I was going to be able to wax on and on and on about it. Um, if anybody else has anything else they wanted to add, I think now would be the time. And if not, then I can see you over in room one at Ask a Coach and we can we can either, either cut it off here. If anybody wants any coaching, we could do that too. I'll just wait a few minutes to see if anybody comments. Okay, I'm just gonna go put this up one more time. Alrighty. So the next event is on Thursday. We'll have group coaching on Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I'm on staycation, so there will be no OR mishaps that prevent me from showing up. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. I can't wait to see you again.